Welcome, everybody. Rich Robinson here on the Exponential Virtual Book Tour, here with my friend Daniel C. So I am based in Edinburgh in the UK, and I lead the Movement Leaders Collective, so a, a community of movement leaders and a catalyst for movement leadership. And so we have a, a hybrid publisher. So part of our ministry is to encourage, equip writers to be able to shift the conversation. And so have a, a friend, but also a 100 Movements publishing author, Daniel. So Daniel, great to be able to have an hour with you. So we're talking about your new book, Spacemaker. So the, the strap line on the front is how to unplug, unwind, think clearly in a digital age. So before we dive into the book, the topic, I've got a list of questions for you, just a little bit about yourself. So who are you, where you are in the world, and what, what you do with your time, go for it. Yeah, great. Look, and great to meet everyone, uh, meeting everyone online on this topic. But so my name's Daniel. Uh, I am in Tasmania, Australia. So that's uh, Hobart is the city I live in, which is it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. There's lots of trees and we're pretty much as close to Antarctica as you can get. So it's one o'clock in the morning at the moment, which is why I'm looking a little tired, but it's great to have everyone here. Uh, I have three children and I'm married to Kylie. Uh, and so I have two things. I'm bivocational. I, I lead a productivity and leadership development company called Spacemakers, which is similar to the name of the book. And we uh, do leadership development. Uh, we help with productivity skills like how to get your inbox to zero how to use online to-do lists and how to use tech, but also how to not use tech to be productive, which I'm going to talk about today. Uh, and I'm also a pastor and a church planter, so I'm very passionate about micro churches and missional communities. Uh, we've been doing stuff in this space for 15 years, ever since I, you know, I met Alan Hirsch about 15 years ago, and we talked about uh, missional communities, and we, we gave it a go, and we've been doing it ever since. And so uh, I'm a pastor, and we meet we meet a few times a month in the city for a service, and then we scatter in different missional communities around Hobart for the rest of the time. Uh, and I also run something called the Together Network, which is part of that role, where we train uh, leaders around the world. Uh, well, not just leaders, actually, just e everyday Christians who love Jesus and who want to share the gospel in this pandemic. It's it's a way of um, helping people to connect with friends on Zoom, share what they're thankful for, share challenges, and then read stories of hope from the life of Jesus with people who don't yet know him. And so in the last 10 months, 11 months, we've been able to see these hope groups uh, spread across the world and see many, many people come to faith in every continent of uh, the world, except for Antarctica. So uh, that's some of what hey. I do. So always, always good to have a, a target and a growth edge. So uh, we can see that, see that happen. And just give a couple more things. So one, we're, we're going to talk about your book, but what, what's on your bookshelf? What are you reading at the moment? Or what's been one, one or two of the key books for you over the last 12 months? Uh, that's that's a challenging question. Well, I mean, at the at the moment, I'm doing a series on love and gender and sexuality. So, look up for for work. I suppose I'm I'm reading a whole lot of stuff around uh, parenting, pornography, um, gender issues, sexuality, uh, which you know is interesting. Uh, yeah, what else has been really influential from a productivity perspective? I've really enjoyed uh, the. Atomic Habits by James Clear. I'm always in, I always enjoyed reading practical books about uh, habit change and productivity. Um, gosh, a standout book. Mm. I did enjoy Rod Dreyer's The Benedict Option, which I read recently mm -hmm. as well, which was a challenging uh, expose of where we're at as a culture. I didn't agree with everything, but gee, he yep. had some really powerful things to say about Christians. Uh, engagement in in the world around us and and the importance of becoming thick cultures where we're really being the people of god and creating countercultures in a world that is increasingly aggressive and hostile so, so yeah. that's that's one idea that's good that's great daniel and so talk, talk to us about about your book so space maker how to unplug unwind and think clearly in a digital age so that that's where we're going to spend our hour so those of you that have jumped on just a few minutes after wonderful to be with you we've got daniel c here author so we're talking about space maker so what why did you write the book and give us a little sort of edited highlights of the the main thrust around it yeah sure so, so look um there was there's an American author, Richard Bach, who once wrote that we teach what we best need to learn. 
And uh, look, I'm, as, as I just mentioned, you know, I've got a lot of roles. I'm bivocational. I'm a, a minister, a father, a husband, a community leader. And, uh, and for me, it's easy to get busy and it's easy to be passionate about the work that God's given me. Uh, it's easy to, to just dive in and fill my life up with stuff. But through that time, I've, I've really come to respect and value the, the meaning of space, of time to think deeply, uh, to rest fully, to, to connect with loved ones, uh, particularly away from a screen. And, and I've seen this connection between my lack of space and the busyness and franticness of my life and, and of those clients that I coach and train, so ex- execs and leaders and CEOs in the world, uh, and, and the connection between digital technology uh, taking over a lot of our life. Uh, digital technology is fantastic, but there's some challenges with it as well. And so I think in the wrestle of this, uh, I've learned to teach what I most need. And the book is really about my wrestle with space over the last you know, decade or more, uh, the, the paradigm of technology. So, the, the, um, the, the changes that I've had to have in my mind uh, and the changes that I have in terms of the cultural narrative of technology. So, so really to have what Jesus says is a metanoia, a changing of our mind around what technology is to me, how to use it and how it frames my faith experience. Uh, and so the book talks about the paradigm of technology from multiple perspectives, from a, a science perspective, from a theological perspective, e- even though it's not actually a religious book per se. Uh, I do um, come from my faith perspectives as well uh, and and from a theoretical perspective. Uh, and then, then we look at practices, which are how do you actually unplug, unwind and live <laughs> clearly, uh, think clearly, live fully be free in the digital age, and, and that's my productivity stuff at play. Basically, what are the practices that we implement in our life and that we implement in the lives of people around us uh, through the coaching, and how might you actually do them in your own life? So more more than just a, uh, a to-do list or a sort of management technical book of don't do this, do do this, but far more it's broader and deeper in terms of shifting our thinking as well as then our, our behaviour in terms of the digital space. Oh, absolutely. Look, in Cal Newport's Digital Minimalism, he, he basically says that uh, tips and tricks and productivity hacks won't cut it anymore when it comes to making space. He doesn't use that term, but making space in the digital age. Uh, he talks about being a minimalist. And uh, I came to the same conclusion that the, the actual practices and tips that have made such a difference in my life are actually pretty easy. You know, one, one of them is uh, don't use your phone and turn off all technology for 24 hours once a week. Very simple, but totally radical and almost (laughs) impossible for most people to do. And so, the tips and tricks themselves, I mean, that's probably the hardest practice. There's a lot simpler ones. Uh, But but the tips and tricks themselves aren't hard. You know, just unplug uh, when you're having dinner. You know, don't put your phone on the table when you're having a conversation with someone. Uh, And yet, at the same time, there's something deeply entrenched in our cultural worldview, in our thinking and our understanding of the world that actually it stops us from being able to do what is healthy for us and therefore we lose space. And so the book needs to address our paradigm and to lead to a metanoia uh, in order to actually allow us to do the simple practices. Yeah, very good. And and what, what would you say to, to those that feel overwhelmed or underwhelmed by the digital world either either overwhelmed by it just feels like it's everywhere it's out of control i don't know where to start or (laughs) underwhelmed by just the fear attached to digital or the the dangers that are attached to digital yeah look i i looked for a number of years at this single question which actually kick-started the book so the the passion for me was i needed space but the question that drove the book is what is the connection between digital technology and use of digital technology and personal productivity because that's that's my background. And so, I went on this journey of uh, looking at the research and coaching people and looking at experiences and looking at theology and the theory of technology because what I noticed is that there are definitely people who I coach or people who I spend time with who are still very, you know, either anti-technology or just don't have the tech skills and the tech savvy to be as productive as they could. And so, some of the things that you need to do is to, you know, learn to use technology um, 
get an iPad, get an iPhone, build up some skills, learn how to use some productivity apps in order to actually increase your productivity, imagining like a typical curve. Yeah. But then what I noticed is there are people on the um, who are really technical, technical technically savvy, uh, people who have plenty of tech skills, who have all the latest gadgets and seem to be constantly on the new thing, but they're, they're also often deeply unproductive. Like they're wired, they're tired, uh, they rarely rest, they can't think deeply and they don't have deep rest or deep work because they're distracted. And, uh, and so, on the one hand, you've got people who don't use technology enough, and I think that's an increasingly small group of people. Uh, on the other hand, there's this massive group of leaders uh, and, and church planters and pastors who uh, are increasingly finding it hard to read and to pray and to think and to have focus. Uh, and so, I was trying to work out what the relationship was. And, and what, we, what I discovered looking at the reading of multitasking and a whole lot of other stuff is it looks like an inverted U-curve. It looks like this, okay? If you use technology, you increase your productivity to a point. Uh, if you keep going, keep adding more stuff, then you end up kind of reaching a plateau. Uh, but then what happens, you actually, if you keep going, and this is what's happened in COVID for a whole of that, whole of our society and COVID has shifted to the yeah, right yeah. of this curve. The whole curve has shifted to the right. And the new normal is what I call digital overwhelm, that you actually use so much technology. You're on Zoom so much uh, at one in the morning <laughs> um, that you actually end up reducing your capacity to get the right things done. You'll get lots done, but you won't actually be productive. And the the solution is both learning skills to use productivity well on the left-hand side of the curve, but uh, you actually need to learn habits and practices to unplug, to unwind, and to think clearly, which are the habits of making space that actually bring you back to the productive middle. And our whole culture, I think, needs to start shifting back towards a healthy medium when it comes to technology in order to use it well. Yeah, because as, as you say, the, the, we were probably drifting towards overuse 18 yeah. months ago. It, it's sort of been pressed fast forward and pushed, pushed the whole of the world, isn't it, globally almost, because um, technology and digital is, is almost everywhere. So interesting to hear you say there's some, some that need to build, build the reps, build the disciplines and habits to increase productivity. But yeah, that, that plateau down and being busy but not effective or busy but not productive very good and we're, we're going to over the course of the the next 45 minutes go into numerous different places so have i'll have you talk to some of the, the parents on the call some of the pastors on the calls and the workplace so what what does this look like in some of these different places but as you're listening in as we're interviewing Daniel C, Spacemaker, how to unplug, unwind and think clearly in the digital age. Do be bouncing your questions through. So whatever question you have, Brooks is going to be stewarding the time. And so as we go through the hour, we'll pick questions from the audience to be able to, to bounce to Daniel. So if you've got something you want to hear more of in the digital space in terms of discipleship, leadership, overuse, practices, culture, mindset, all, all these places already that we've just touched on a little bit. Put your questions in and we'll be able to take them. So, Daniel, as I read and as I've heard you talk, you've talked about uh, the, the digital technology in the digital space being a discipleship issue. So it's mm -hmm. not just a, a technology issue, but actually a discipleship issue. Just Tell us more about that. Why Why do you say that? Why do you believe that? And then what, what's your uh, speaking into and, and response in that space? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, and I'm absolutely passionate like you know, we should be uh, in terms of making disciples uh, who make disciples, so multiplying disciple makers. And look, as I'm sure many of you know, the word disciple is methetes in the New Testament. Uh, so, go into all the world and make Mathetes. And uh, literally translated, Mathetes means learner or pupil. But I think that doesn't necessarily cut it for many of us in the Western context, whether it be the US or the UK or Australia, where I'm from, because we often think about learning in a Greek way. It's, it's all about what we know in our head, not necessarily how we apply it in our lives. So, I think the best translation is apprentice. We talk about um, discipleship as being an apprenticeship to Jesus and training others who are apprenticing their lives to Jesus. So, that means that our head, our heart, and our habits are being oriented around this person of Jesus. Jesus and, and we're becoming more and more like him 
moving from unbelief to belief in every area of our life, as I think Hugh Holter says. And so, if that's what apprenticeship is, to, to orientate our head and our heart and our habits towards Jesus, well, then this is absolutely a discipleship issue. In fact, again, in, in Rod Dreyer, uh, in his book, The Benedict, the Benedict Option, he actually he suggests that the two areas where culture and faith clash most severely and where uh, which are the most significant discipleship issues in our age are sex and sexuality, you know, we know this, this is no surprise, uh, and technology. That, that if we cannot wrestle deeply with these issues as pastors and as congregations, we will lose our children uh, to the secular thinking of our world. And yet the thing about um, technology is it's a lot more hidden and it's a lot more acceptable uh, and and miss a lot more misunderstood than actually the challenges of gender and sexuality uh, in our culture. And as a result of that, I think it kind of it, it lays dormant. It it aligns with our worldview so much that we struggle to separate ourselves from it and then see where the gospel speaks into it. Uh, but um, you know, t- technology uh, again, as Rod Ray says, is a liturgy. It's the liturgy of secularism. I don't write about this in the book specifically because it's, as I said, it's not a specifically religious book. But um, it is. It, it has become a, a liturgy of secularism. What I mean by that is, it's, it's kind of like the opposite of the Ignatius rhythms. You know, where you finish the day and end the day, end the day and start the day, reflecting in silence and and reflecting on who God has made you to be. Uh, instead, we finish the day with Candy Crush or you know playing with our phone on you know Instagram or or and then we we. Start start the day by opening up our Gmail or our news feed or our social media or listening to what's happening uh, in, in, in the world of the pandemic and we're listening to other people's minds and not our own mind or listening to the voice of God uh, and, and all of those ideas embedded within technology shape our thinking, they, they frame the way we enter the day uh, and they also, the habits end up forming who we are. Uh, again, James Clear, who I did mention, he says that every uh, every habit or every action you take is a vote for the person you wish to become. So basically, our digital habits are communicating values. They're communicating what we believe, and they are actually shaping who we're becoming at a at a neurological level. Uh, and and that's a discipleship issue. Absolutely. And in in the book, you the the flow that you lay out is paradigm principles and and practices. So that the, the way of thinking key principles and areas and then practices how how to put it into practice so when we're thinking about paradigm our our mental map the way we see the world the ideas that frame frame the world just talk to us you you talk about neuroplasty in the book um or neuroplasticity in the book sorry get the right term so just talk, (laughs) talk to us a little bit about our brains and our thinking and and the influence and effects that digital and and technology are having on on our brains before we get to our behaviors. Just talk to us about that mental space first. Yeah. How do we renew our mind in a positive way? Hey, Uh, so so I used to be a physiotherapist. I don't know if I mentioned that a physical therapist in your, if you're in the States and I did that for more than a decade and I had an outpatient clinic and I remember a story. Well, I I remember a particular patient actually, uh, which I do write about in, in the book, a lady called Susan, and she came in, she kind of came in like this, uh, walking into my clinic like a crab with her head 30 degrees turned to the right. And I'm like, oh, this lady's walking really strangely and she looked awkward and I couldn't work out what was wrong. And then she said that she had a car accident, a whiplash injury about 10 years before. And she'd been in a, a neck collar, a brace, and she had it on for a long time and her neck kind of just got stuck. And uh, she didn't really know that she walked like a crab, which surprised me. But she said her friends told her she walked funny and uh, and she wanted my advice. And so I just assumed that her neck, because she walked in like this, like a crab, that she couldn't move. But when I did all the manual tests, like her neck could, it was stiff, but it, it could move centrally and it could move left and right. The pain wasn't as terrible as I thought either because it wasn't acute and it had settled down. And so I was just like, why do you walk like this? So I got her in front of a mirror and I got her to to close her eyes and turn her head to the right and then to the left. And I said, put your head back straight so that you're looking straight onto the mirror. And she goes, okay. And she opened her eyes and she was like that. And uh, and what I realized is it was it was a mental map problem. It, we call it proprioception, which is about the the way in which your mind 
and joints are orienting themselves in space. Basically, she just felt like this was straight. And so that's where she ended up. And we got a great result with her. We ended up kind of looking in the mirror. She just did that every day until she worked out what straight was and she uh, retrained her brain. But that's a good example of neuroplasticity. The idea that whatever we do repetitively and continuously can actually mold and shape our map of the world. And as we do that, we actually shape who we are in response to the world around us. Now, I, I think that uh, has a lot, Susan's story has a lot in my mind to do with the digital world and how our mental maps are shifting, how the new normal is changing, and we're experiencing symptoms of digital overuse like being tired and constantly distracted and always needing stimulation, needing to reach for our phone or thinking about the hearts on Instagram even when we're with our kids and we hate the fact we're doing it. You know, like our brains are shifting in response to the training that we're giving them through digital technology. And for some of us, we're, we're recognizing that there's a need to, to shift back again to where we need to get to. Uh, and, and the beauty about neuroplasticity is it can change. So it's not all negative. Uh, we, we can change our habits. And the things that we do repetitively will actually allow our mind map to, to shift. Uh, this lady actually ended up straight again with some practice. Uh, you know, and I do think like the, the average American I read, uh, the average American is now spending 12.3 or 12.4 hours on a screen per day post pandemic, which is actually a lot of time. I mean, it's 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 more time than we spend eating, commuting, uh, sleeping, um, playing, all combined. Like it's it's in a massive amount of time. In in my country, we're at about nine and a half, nine point eight hours, which is still really really high. And I keep thinking. Um, like I, I used to play the piano. Well, my parents wanted me to play the piano and getting 20 minutes of music practice out of me was like, you know, <laughs> I still have to say sorry to them nowadays for how I treated them. Uh, but imagine if I'd spent 12 hours a day practicing the piano. If any of us spent 12 hours a day practicing an instrument or any skill, what would that do to our, our, our brain? Like our musicality would increase our capacity to use our fingers, to think musically, to, to hear the world in a particular way. Like it would be absolutely massive. And yet we are practicing the internet 12 hours a day. And that practice is shaping our thinking, our hearts and our habits. And, and that's why I think it's really important we can have a kill switch from time to time to, to recalibrate to straight. That was a long answer, but, but I'm passionate about neuroplasticity and how we can reform our brains and reform our faith. But, it, but it's, it's important, Daniel, because we, we're going to go down from sort of 10,000 foot to 1,000 foot to, to, to 10 foot in terms of, well, what, what do you do then? If, if you've convinced me or I know my need, what, what do I do? So I, I, I want to read a little, bit, a little bit from probably my, my favorite and least favorite paragraph or, or sort of little list for you that, that you, you will recognize um, and Anna recognize. So um, you talk about five and I'll, I'll get you to talk of uh, about the five principles in terms of space, but, but one of them in terms of embrace silence, I just want to read as you put your in sum and you do your little headlines at, at the end. So oh. si silence is quiet. It's time away from distraction. Silence is disruptive. It's a way of unhinging us. Silence builds self-awareness, allowing us to detect meaning in the seemingly insignificant moments of life. Silence strengthens our personal conviction by forcing us to face ourselves. Silence is necessary to make peace with the soul. The practice of silence is not complicated. I, I, I read that list and I go, that's awesome and horrendous all, all at once it's one of those it's the bit where you, where you say jesus got up early to pray you're like oh okay um so talk talk to us about those five so so for me the embracing silence as an activist and extrovert or always on 100 ideas before breakfast sort of as you're describing the sort of so for me silence has been the one that's actually helped me to steady myself and silence myself to then be able to to engage with it with the other others so just give us the the space maker the s-p-a-c-e because that's one of the frames that will help people as they're listening in and so again just before you do that just again welcoming those that have come on and a, a little bit later so we've got daniel c here talking about his new book space maker so the brooks will drop in the in the chat for you the opportunity of where you can access the book so 
unplug, unwind and think clearly in a digital age. So we've just been talking to Daniel in terms of the paradigm, the mental map, how we think about technology and how technology is shaping the way that we think. And we're just moving down to, okay, so what next and why and how and what, what does it look like? So just talk to us, Daniel, about the S-P-A-C-E of, of space, these five key principles. Yeah, nice. Uh, so, so, look, I'm a fan of Stephen Covey, who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He's kind of like still the guru of personal productivity. And he talks about principles, which are different than values. He says that values are things that are very important, but, but we can make up our own values. And yet principles are those timeless uh, values, I suppose, that orientate and align with God's reality. Okay. Um, in a very similar vein, but from a different perspective, I was listening to an audio book by Mark Manson the other day, um, The Subtle Art of Not Giving Up. I'm sure you know the other end of it. And uh, he says some really silly things, but he says some quite profound things. And one of the things he talks about is shitty values. And he's basically saying what Covey says, that there are values that you might have that are just a shitty. <laughs> and, um, and there are values that are true, which that align with reality. So, you know, whether sec secular or faith thinking, there are principles that we need to stick to. So, uh, my thinking is if we're going to change our paradigm and then move towards very specific practices, we need to align them in true north principles that align with God's reality. And so, I, there are five that I feel are very, very helpful. And I call them the space principles, as you said, uh, set limits. So, the value of setting limits. Um, and life-giving boundaries. Uh, <laughs> P, it's too early, too, late, <laughs> too early in the morning. Uh, plan patterns. So, that's about predictable patterns. So, once you've set limits, how do you actually habituate those patterns in your life so that you can do them regularly? Uh, the third one is cultivate community. So, we talk a lot about the difference in the research between a face-to-face -face community and online community and th just the centrality of having in-person community and orienting your life around real relationships uh, as, you know, not completely discounting social media, but com community is important. Uh, the third one is to uh, SBAC. Oh, I missed one. Sorry. Uh, assign rest. Hey. Assign rest. There we are. Assign rest is the third one. The importance of actually booking in your rest before you book in your work and actually prioritizing rest in your patterns so that you work from your rest, not rest from your work. And that's a Sabbath principle. You know, God made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Our first day was rest. And therefore, uh, we work from that as a place of faith. And the last one, as you mentioned, is embrace silence. The power and value of quiet and how hard it is. Again, it's a simple habit. You just don't have noise and don't have your phone on and just be still and do it regularly. But it's incredibly difficult unless it becomes an imbued value, something that is deep uh, and that shapes you from the inside out. Yeah. And, and in, in terms of as, as people listen to those set limits, plan patterns, assign rest, cultivate community, embrace silence, if they say, Yes, 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 yes. I love that. The, the danger with a value or a principle is we can, we can give mental assent, verbal assent, and then it, it stay, stays in that world rather than become something that, that we embody, that we take that first step. So it, of those five, where would you suggest if, if I'm listening in, I'm thinking, I know this is true. I know this is now. I know this is for me. Do, do I pick one of the five? Do I try a little bit of each of the five every week? Do I focus on a couple? What, what are some of the, and we'll get to the practices as the, the next half of the conversation, but th thoughts on how people wrap their arms and, and their life around those? Yeah, I mean, I have, uh, each of the practices embodies the five principles. Uh, and so I find them a little inseparable in the sense of, uh, you know, if, if you start and end the day by charging your phone outside of your bedroom and leave that small pause at the beginning and at the end, well, then you've got silence. Uh, you're, you're prioritizing rest in the sense of it's, it's a time where you think your own thoughts rather than other people's thoughts. Uh, you're creating a predictable pattern in your life. You've set limits. You're putting like a little boundary like on, on the times where you're not completely online. Uh, so, so, the principles and the practices are quite connected. So, I, I'm not sure I know how to simply say pick one of them, um, but I, I do particularly value community as a micro church and missional community person you know, and the importance of 
creating patterns around community life so that you're getting the incredible research-based benefits, let alone the spiritual and faith benefits uh, of actually doing life personally with others, which is totally different from a research perspective from mm-hmm. online community. Uh, and and for the introverts, uh, I love the practice of silence, of of just learning to be still and and courageous in examining your own heart and allowing yourself to know your thoughts and therefore uh, and, and allow God to speak into who you are so you can see you can see the world with reality um, and all of them need to be patterned um, I, actually I could talk a story about cultivate community if that'd be helpful yeah go for it yeah I mean one example is we we live in community we uh, bought some land and built a house next to another family and you don't have to do that of course but um, what we ended up realizing pretty quickly is you can live next door to someone even if you're deeply committed to their life and yet um, not do life with them. Um, we were living next door to close friends and we still were disconnected as, as young parents. So we thought, well, how, how can we connect as a community? And we came up with this idea, we need to plan patterns. We need predictable patterns that will help us engage together. So we figured we are parents with really young kids. We we're exhausted and tired all the time, but we had to cook for our family. They had to cook for their family. So we thought, look, let's eat together every Wednesday night. And one week you cook, the next week we'll cook and we'll just go to each other's houses. But it's not a dinner party. It's a rough and ready meal. Uh, We don't clean the house. Uh, We don't cook anything that's going to make us stressed. Uh, And we allow it to be chaotic. But it's just a way of doing life together. And that simple pattern has been absolutely transformative for our relationship. But it's actually ended up becoming a microchurch because uh, we we ate together every week for 10 years. I mean, we just kept doing it. And eventually others decided that we invited friends and those friends became common friends. And we invited people who weren't churched um, or people who we felt we God wanted us to disciple and show what it looked like to live in a family on mission. Uh, and that simple rhythm, we called it big dinner in the end because it ends up with like 25 people or 30 people sometimes every Wednesday night. We ended up buying a communal freezer and we'd have big chop where we would all chop food together as a community and put it in a freezer so it was easier to rotate around and, and cook. Uh, we now have the big dinner circuit where we rotate around the street with people who are uh, people of faith and people who aren't of Christian background, but we do say we're going to pray before the dinner, even if it's at your house and you're not a believer. Uh, and and so again, it's just it, and it's created a sense of life and a new culture where we're not constantly on our phones. We don't use phones at the table, so there's this sense where we're creating a counterculture with a simple, simple, repeatable pattern of eating once a week with another family and and opening our homes, our fridges, and our lives, which is actually quite simple, uh, but it's very rewarding. That's great, Daniel. And I, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna push you now just down into the stories, the tips, the, the practices. So uh, one of the audience questions, and as I read this, continue to, to bounce the questions through for Daniel. So how do you balance being a bivocational pastor in terms of making space? So sometimes it seems like the marketplace and ministry work each take more time and attention than they should. Mm. Uh, look, I, uh, I, I used to put my hand on my heart and say, I think the future is bivocational. And, uh, you know, as a church planter, I didn't have the backing of a large denomination. You, just can't, you can't be full-time. And, uh, and I also love contributing to people's lives and helping them make space through business. So, uh, and I have done that for a decade. Well, I've, I've been bivocational for nearly 20 years, actually. I haven't had a full-time job for at least 15. And, um, and I've only had very small gaps where I haven't been doing bivocational ministry. Uh, however, uh, <laughs> the irony is um, I am actually selling my business, uh, which is really bad timing when you release a book called Spacemaker, and I'm actually moving into full-time ministry for, exa- for exactly the same reason that I've found that writing a book, um, doing more and more church planting and more and more speaking and ministry, I, I simply can't have space and live up to my values and to, and to have that time to think and reflect and to be still. There's no buffer in my life anymore uh, since I released the book, actually. And the only way I can live the practices in, embedded in the book is actually to clear some really important things in my life that I love uh, in order to focus on what God's saying. So I, I'm not an advocate now for bivocational or full-time ministry, and I haven't experienced the pain and struggle of only having one profession either, which you know, I'm sure I'll, I'll experience. Uh, but 
um, I still think it's just about being a disciple of Jesus, hearing and obeying God's word. Every year for the last 10 years, I've said, God, I would love not to be bivocational because it's getting harder and harder. And every year I have this sense of Jesus saying, be still. This is the path you're on and there'll be a, there'll be a way forward. Uh, and yet there's something absolutely beautiful about mixing both worlds. You know, I, I'm able to speak about the gospel in um, productivity terms and I can bring my productivity stuff into my faith journey, you know, and this is exactly what the book is. It's kind of like this mix of physiotherapy and science of productivity and being able to help people with very clear and specific practices and faith. Uh, so um, I don't know. There's, I can't really answer that question only to say that Jesus has a path for every person and he'll give you the tools needed to make space and to be faithful within the path he's got for you. Good. Well, let, let, let's take it into then some of these practices. So you, you go paradigm, mental map, principles, these orientating key, key values, key ideas, and then into practices. So ways to be able to do this. And, and as you said, it's not the quick fix, the kind of technical or the, the tactics that kind of make it make it better. You've got to do some of the hard work of the mental, the emotional before and the philosophical before you move to the, the practical. So talk, talk to us about as you land the book very practically, what, what are some of those those practices that you've seen work over many years? Yeah, no, that's great. Actually, I might, if, if you don't mind, just say one more thing, and it's very related to the question, yeah. both questions. I, I think the only way I could do bivocational ministry for so long is by having good practices. I think that because there's less buffer, there's less room in your life, uh, you need more structure. And people like Hugh Holt who've written on bivocational ministry have said the same thing. Uh, the only way I can do it is by having really good practices and rhythms that allow me to be organized, to run a family, to have space for myself, to exercise, uh, which is really the patterns that you see in this book anyway. So there's a connection. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so what's your question? What are some practices? Yeah, yeah. So, so again, okay. pe people will be listening in going, yes, 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 yes. To tell tell me a sort of how do I do it? Where do I start? What do you do? This is great. So give, give us some, as you land the book in some of these right. practices, just talk a little bit about them. Okay. So from a productivity point of view, I think, and this comes from Stephen Covey, you need annual practices, you need weekly practices, and you need daily practices. Okay. I, I think you need to look at all three perspectives from the big to the small or the small to the big in order to create a pattern or a rhythm in your life. And the patterns that I'm talking about are unplugging and unwinding from technology in a considered way in order to be more productive, to have those spaces where you prioritize them in your life. So um, annually, uh, I mean, this is really tough for a North American audience because I realized that uh, the amount of vacation leave that you have is often pretty minimal, you know, 10 days or less. But uh, the first one is book your holidays before you book your rest. Uh, before you book your work, I'm sorry, holidays first. Uh, and and so practically what, what that says is at the beginning of the year, for me, it's January. For you, it might be a different time of the year. Uh, my wife and I look at our schedule and we say, look, where can we put gaps, okay, from a holiday perspective in our schedule? And not just where can we put them in, in line with the, the times of stress and busyness or challenge in our lives, but how do we do it in a way that actually is deeply restful? So for us, there are times where we need to be adventurous as a family, but there are other times where we need to actually just slow down and be still. We go somewhere, we play board games, we walk, uh, we ride, and, and we have a lot of quiet together. Uh, so it's just trying to work out um, how do you create a pattern in your year that is somewhat nourishing, even if it's just a day or two, and be proactive in in locking in your rest before any meeting, any Zoom, any any schedule or or a conference gets into your calendar. Because what often happens is it's the other way around. You start with work and you work, 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 and then you just think, I'm drowning and now I need some rest. So that's a very simple practical tip uh, at an annual perspective. There's lots of annual perspective stuff which I could talk about. Um, at a weekly perspective, that's that's the that's the really kind of meaty bit. Again, Stephen Covey says from a productivity point of view, the weekly perspective or your big rocks is the thing that really is kind of holds the annual and the daily together. And I think it's the same for the space making practices. Uh, and that's that's Sabbath. I mean, I call it a weekly day of rest in the book because I'm not writing to a specific religious audience, but for us. It's our story. I mean, it's the digital Sabbath. 
Um, Abraham Heschel, who's a, a rabbi, suggested in the 1950s, you know, he was worried about black and white TV and the impact of that on our lives. And he, <laughs> and he said that uh, we, we need to disconnect from our technological society from time to time, not in order to reject technological civilization, but in order to master ourselves. And, and what he's saying is um, by disconnecting for one day a week, uh, we actually end up mastering ourselves. We, we find independence from our technologies and therefore we use them better throughout the rest of the week. Uh, Walter Brueggemann says people who keep Sabbath um, live all seven days differently. So, so I've, I've got in the book a very specific and practical framework for how on earth do you map out a day of rest around the principles of rest and I call it uh, reflection. But for Christians, I'd say rest and remembrance, remembering who Jesus is and remembering that we're made to, that we, we, um, that God worked for six days and rested on the seventh. How do you take the principles of rest and worship or rest and remembrance and embed them into a day? Uh, how do you do it as a family, knowing that there are introverts and extroverts? Uh, kids will have different needs than adults. And how can you actually navigate rest together? How do you work out what work means to you and therefore what rest means to you? Because for some people, rest is active. It doesn't have to be like quiet and meditative yeah. on a couch. Uh, what's the role of technology in that? And how do you actually just specifically plan out what's in, what's out? What are your rituals? And how do you experience a life-giving day without technology once a week? Um, look, that's the hardest habit without a doubt, but my wife... Uh, would would tell you that it's the habit that has given us the most life as a family. It's the one that strengthened our marriage, uh, allowed us to have the most energy missionally. Um, I, I can't recommend more the idea of actually thinking about how to plan a day of rest once a week in a really intentional way. Uh, and then there's the daily habits. Is this okay or should we pause? Are you happy if I keep well, going? Uh, yeah, no, I just want to pause you for a second. So for... For again, people listening in, I've got a job, or I'm co-vocational, or I'm a pastor. I'm also parent, or I live in a shared house. That there's so many layers to people's experience. Um, as people are listening in, what what would you say to, um, for instance, to a pastor who's saying, I, I want this, but dot, 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 whatever the pressures or, or somebody, you, there was a, a co-vocational question, somebody in the workplace sort of, I've got work and everyone else at work is on. So the social media expectations, the congregational expectations, my boss or my team. So how, how do, in the context of other people's culture being different, do we begin to set our own culture? Mm. I mean, that's a big question. And and on the one hand, you need lots of different answers. You know, in the book, I give lots of different ideas because, I mean, there's not just one way to unplug. Uh, there are principles and practices. But, but I think for, for a pastor, for, for people of faith, it, I think it comes down to faith. You know, for me, the best word for faith in the English language is trust. And, um, I mean, I've experienced all those things. I'm a busy person. I'm driven. I'm passionate. God's given me a great vision. I've given our family a vision to work together. My wife's uh, in ministry as well and bivocational as a nurse. So, you know, our, our life, life could be frantic. Um, I'm, I'm on social media with, with business as well. And yet, for me, j just let's say for the example of Sabbath or digital Sabbath, but it applies for all these practices, um, it, trust means that I trust that that God is bigger than me. I, I trust that it's God who's building his church, not me. Uh, if I can't stop for a day a week and enjoy him and enjoy my family, enjoy being, not doing, well, I think that's actually an issue of trust. And uh, and we, we need to lead by example. E even missionally, it makes sense. You know, I think um, people, people see our lives and, you know, you can go and say, okay, Jesus will rescue you. Here's the way, the truth and the life. You know, his yoke is light, his burden, his, you know, his burden is not heavy. But then they just say, well, ba you're basically your life is saying be a Christian and be exhausted and tired all the time like me. You can't ever unplug, you can't ever rest. I mean, what you're saying with your life is that <laughs> Jesus' promises aren't true. So they have to be true for you if they're going to be true for others. Uh, and so, again, I think, I think we have to start with not shitty values but true north principles. And one of them is assign rest. 
before assigning work. And that's not just about like slowing down. That's actually a deep trust in, in Jesus who is who we can yoke ourselves to and, and walk the discipleship path. And he got up and rested before he worked. He prayed, he meditated, um, he, he was slow and still before he was active and busy. The activity came out of his identity. Uh, and and we, we need to be able to do this again. So um, uh, that's, not an, that's not an easy answer, but I think deeply at an identity and theological level, uh, rest is a matter of trust, uh, particularly yes, yes. in our crazy Western culture. Yes, uh, yeah, it, it's trust for us personally, but as, as you say, and I would absolutely agree and echo, our life is our primary apologetic often to those that don't know Jesus. We're, we are communicating our faith by how we are often before we ha- even have the chance to communicate any, any word. So people are, people are watching, people are observing, and they are, they are reading the narrative that we are providing of, of who Jesus is by the way that we are. And, and just take, take us down then Daniel into the, into the daily. So what, what does that look like in terms of, again, just some, some thoughts for people to engage yeah, definitely. And look, connecting both thoughts, I mean, Steve Addison once wrote, and it really touched my heart, that we teach people why we should do the Great Commission. Like everyone knows the need to go and make disciples, but we don't teach people how to do it. And it's often yeah. the how, it's the house space where many of us get stuck, uh, particularly if we want to be faithful. And I think this is the same with rest. So it's easy for me to say, hey, rest is a matter of trust. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you should trust in Jesus by not working so much. You know, I mean, that's, as I said, I'm teaching what I most need to learn. So please forgive me if I came across as, uh, as a know-it-all because I wrestle with this, which is why I'm passionate about it. And I've seen the impact of on my life uh, and my faith by through that wrestle. Um, however, we need the how. And so, uh, and the how can start really small and it can start really simple. Uh, every habit shapes your being okay so every action you do repetitively is a vote for the person you want to become and it changes your mind uh, through neuroplasticity it changes your heart uh, and the small things can lead to big things so again if, if that question is making you feel overwhelmed maybe just start with the daily habits not like the digital sabbath which is like well that is like a moon landing um and so some practices i've mentioned before um one one practice it is just having daily pauses where you're not totally wide. So one idea again is to charge your phones and devices outside of your bedroom uh, and have a pause at the end of the day where you're journaling or praying or thinking. Just go to bed without tech and wake. Have a power down routine and have a power up routine where you start without Facebook, without Instagram, without Gmail, or without the news. Um, ideally have your shower, eat your breakfast, or have a gap before you engage in media. Um, and, and for families, you talked about parents, that works really well. I mean, the, in Australia, 80% of Australian teens report that they check their phone throughout the night uh, when they think that when their parents think they're asleep. And uh, 10% of um, teenagers check notifications on their phone at least 10 times a night throughout the night. Uh, leading to a massive level of insomnia, anxiety, depression, etc. Now, I imagine it's very similar in the States and in the UK. Um, so, again, as a parent, very simple parenting kind of instruction, just all charge your phones in the same spot out of, out of your bedroom, have a power down routine and a, um, a slow routine to enter. That, that's one small, simple habit. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Another one is eating together. The research is amazing in terms of the benefits of eating a meal at a table together as a family once a week, uh, once a day. Okay, but but that's without your technology because the benefit involves banter and communication, eye contact, uh, and so that is a really simple habit that anyone can implement. And if you're already doing it, you can say, "Hey, I'm I'm winning." Uh, the research says it's a key. It's a keystone habit, which means it unlocks other habits. So uh, families that eat together, they they um, have kids with statistically high numeracy and literacy skill, literacy skills. It's it's almost as good for reading and writing as reading books with your kids. Okay, when they're young, every day. So it's it's that close. Uh, so, so basically, eat 
eat and talk with your kids. Um, it, it reduces their risk of teen pregnancy, of drug abuse. It increases their entrance scores at high school and university, increases their long-term earnings uh, and, and their health and happiness. That simple keystone habit. Uh, but don't use technology. Uh, I recommend questions to ask and to create in, as a culture, uh, as a table. Um, obviously, I'd recommend saying thanks for the food, saying grace, but you can say what you're thankful for. Uh, we love high-low buffalo. We just say, hey, what's your high, low, and buffalo? So high is what's one thing that stands out that's been positive or helpful for today or that you're thankful for? What's your low from the day? Something that was hard. You know, it's good to share and have that mm. honesty. And what's a buffalo? Just something random or strange or funny that you can think of. That's a great way to have conversation. Um, we talk about... Um, Resilience from the Carol Dweck research uh, on growth mindset. So the question that I, I give at the table is, uh, it, have, have you tried hard at anything today? Uh, or Malcolm Gladwell shapes that question a bit differently. He says, um, what's because uh, he has something called desir desirable difficulty theory, the importance of teaching kids that difficulty and failure is actually good because you're trying. So we ask the kids the question, um, what, what have you failed at this week? Or have you failed at something recently? Have you had a beautiful failure at some time recently? And we get to talk about the things we've tried. And I'm like, if you haven't failed, you haven't tried hard enough at something. So again, it's just simple habits, no phones at the table and, and talk. And there's just have a few questions uh, and, and you can create a really nice culture as a family. Uh, the, the, la the other one that's really simple is, is um, the research for phones is really fantastic in terms of um, if you have a meeting with someone and you put your phone on the table, the research, they, they looked at uh, people who were um, talking together and trying to have a meaningful conversation. Uh, the control group had a notepad on the table and the test group had a phone on the table, but it was actually turned off. It didn't ring and no one touched it and it was face down. And the perceived level of emotional um, connection, quality of the conversations and the intimacy of those conversations reduced when the phone was on the table. Uh, and, and that's been repeated again and again. It's been repeated with complex cognitive tasks. So you actually can't think as well and problem solve as well if the phone's on the table because it, it takes a tiny bit of your cognitive energy to keep thinking about whether or not that phone's going to do something and it actually reduces your outcome. So that has an impact for meetings. So again, another simple habit, put your phone in your pocket or even put it away when you're having a coffee with someone, a ministry meeting, when you're talking with your children uh, or when you're in, in work meetings and it doesn't actually require the screen, create a culture where you're not um, looking at your phone. So again, a whole lot of very simple practical habits can enable us to make a bit of space and have that daily pause and that can shape our being and then that can give us the space we need for bigger things. That's good. I'm going to I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. We've only got a, f a few minutes left. So if there's anyone in, in terms of the audience that want to put, put a question on, we'll be able to ask Daniel that as well. Um, how do you build these habits in a team? So be that a, a workplace context or a, a, you're a pastor and you have a, a church team. How, how do you go about that? You've talked about how you're doing it in your family. And obviously you work with people um, in a workplace setting. And you talked about being by a vacation. What, what does this look like to begin to build this culture, not just in the home, but in, in the office and in your team? Again, how, how do you go about the, the vision for it and shifting the thinking up in the paradigm level? How do you begin to shape some of the behaviours in down in the, the practices level? Yeah, I mean, in my, my mind, you do things top to bottom and bottom up at the same time with any change management. So from the bottom up, you don't have to talk about it. You just start living it out. Uh, so just, just start practising the practices yourself and, uh, and lead by example, which is a bit like the big dinner example. We just started eating together once a week then others started to get involved because they realized, hey, this is kind of cool. Uh, and then the top down is, well, yeah, have the conversations, you know, buy a book for people or, or talk about some of these ideas or explain, okay, this is the research or this is the reasoning for me keeping my phone in my pocket now at meetings. Uh, I hope that's okay. And why don't we have a conversation about trying it? I like pilots when it comes to change management. You know, so how, how about we pilot, you know, a meeting uh, on Wednesday where we all put our devices away and we just have a quality conversation without people texting and checking stuff throughout that meeting. Uh, let's just pilot uh, eating together without our devices. I know, you know, teenage son and daughter that this is going to feel like an amputation, but why don't we just put our phones out of sight and away? And I have a question that I'd love to ask. Oh, dad, 
oh, come on, it's not that bad a question. Let's just give it a go once. Um, so I think you've, you've got to try things in action uh, and yet, yeah, you want to be able to shape and frame the context. And again, like leading teams is no different than leading yourself really in the sense of you just lead by example, have the conversations, and then somehow in the middle, your actions and discussions will meet together and in terms of forming new habits. But, but the key is to start small and to do one small thing rather than try to change the world at, at the same time. Yeah, that, that's a good word, Daniel, isn't it? it it's not, I'm going to come off the webinar, throw my phone out the window and get, get some sackcloth and never, never open a screen again. It, it is, this is a world we live in and it's how do we live well within that world, isn't it? Rather than trying to create a, a world that is, is really unrealistic given the frame of culture right now and where it, where it's going. But as you said, the, the, con the context of mastering ourselves and being able to be proactive within this rather than re reactive and being able mm -hmm. to be intentional rather than overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. uh, fi final piece, you, you talk about the Elijah and the prophets of Baal, who I'm sure struggled, <laughs> struggled with digital technology as well, just as much as the rest of us. So <laughs> give us a little context. How, how did that make it in? And give, give yeah. us the, the context of why, why that story is there. Yeah, look, the, the prophets of Baal and Elijah is not a time management or a productivity story whatsoever. So I, I'm not pretending to exegete it in the wrong way. But uh, as the Holy Spirit does, he spoke to me. And it was a time when I was super busy. I was struggling again with space and really exhausted and wrestling with how can I just get this stuff done in my life uh, and actually, you know, be disciplined at keeping my boundaries. Uh, and I was losing again, which often happens. Uh, and I read this story again. I obviously, look, I'm assuming you know the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Uh, and they make two altars and they sacrifice a bull on each. And they basically say that, you know, that Elijah pours water all over the altar and, and it's whoever, you know, whichever altar lights up, it's the real God. And so we know the story. But I read this story and something really struck me because um, it was a drought. And the whole scenario was because there'd been this massive famine there was no water. People were starving. And, um, and, and this is the context of this kind of showdown on, on the mountain. And yet Elijah in, in the scriptures just poured gallons and gallons of water all through the altar. And I always assume that, you know, pour it, fill it with water and that makes it even more mirac miraculous when it lights up. But I actually think something else is going on. And it struck me that Elijah poured out a resource he didn't have in worship. And that is, is part of why God came and rescued him. Uh, he, he was obeying God with trusting in what he didn't have, which was water, and, and God brought the rain. And, uh, and God really spoke to me. He said, what you don't have is time and space. You lack space and time to do stuff, and that is your most precious commodity. I want you to sacrifice it on Elijah's altar and give it to me first as a matter of faith, as trust, that, that your identity is in me and not in your productivity tips and hacks and all the things you know. Uh, and so... I did that uh, in the busiest time of my life. I, I blocked off, it's like the first fruits principle for money, but with time, I blocked off Monday morning uh, and said, this is something that is about rest and worship, rest and remembrance. And I went walking on a mountain without my phone, uh, drank a, you know ginger tea and just prayed and reflected every Monday morning for a year. And somehow, miraculously, my life actually got okay. Like my work steadied, my inbox got under control. When I needed work, I got it. When I didn't, it slowed down. Um, and it wasn't my habit. It wasn't the walking on the mountain. It was obedience to Jesus and trusting that him with my time. And so my lesson out of that is actually that time and productivity, that the, the wrestle with space and technology is actually a faith issue uh, because in the upside down kingdom, time belongs to God. And we won't fix our problems with time with hacks and productivity tips alone. Uh, we'll fix it by trusting in God and, and following his lead. And, and it's our wrestle. It's my wrestle with space and my lack of space and my, my wrestle with technology, as much as I love technology and think it's amazing, um, it's my wrestle with these things is actually Elijah's wrestle with God. It's, it's actually Jacob's wrestle with, uh, with God. It's, it's Israel. It's contending with God. That's my contention. My wrestle with time and space is what allows me to know myself and to allow me to know God. And even though it's painful, it's a space of faith if we allow it to be. And, and that's how I conclude. I, I'd encourage us to hold up these challenges in faith and allow God to grow us and allow us to be the people he's called us to be through that struggle for space. Uh, thank you, Daniel. And 
and from my perspective, I've obviously see, seen the journey of the book. Um, what, what I love about it is that there is a humility, there's a transparency, there's an honesty, that there's nothing worse than somebody writing a book and going, I'm perfect, I'm really good at this. The whole book is about how wonderful I am. You are honestly saying this, this is truth that has been won through the jaws of defeat and in battle. I've learned from mistakes to learn. And, and what I've really appreciated, even in this hour, is this is where the struggle was. This is what I learned. This is what God did. And this is what I'm sharing with you. This is where I was failing. This is what God did. This is what I learned. This is what I'm sharing with you. So all of, all of this is well-worn wisdom. It's not concept, whiteboard, thoughts, kind of hope. It really is from the, the jaws of life and both defeat and victory to be able to share. So really, really appreciate it. And a wonderful place to finish that this is a faith issue, discipleship issue. How does this help us to be formed into greater Christ-likeness? Where, where can people pick up the book? Where, where are they able to access this if they're inspired and they want to, to get a copy of Spacemaker? Where do they go? How do they get their hands on it? And how do they connect with you? Yeah, so uh, the book's available through, you know, all good bookstores, uh, you know, Amazon if you're in the States, I assume, Book Depository, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there is a Kindle version, a Kobo version, so ebook versions, uh, a paperback, and also an audio book version, which I recorded myself, uh, you know, professionally, but it's my voice. Uh, and that's, again, on Audible and other um, audio bookstores. So, yep, I'd, I'd love you to have a look and love you to buy it, love you to write a review. Just it's only been released recently. So, we're trying to get the word out. Uh, and how do you connect with me? I'm at info at spacemakers.com.au. Uh, there's there's um, a website, Spacemakers, plural, with an S, spacemakers.com.au backslash book. You can read about it. Uh, and if, if you'd like me to speak or have, have any questions uh, to answer, just, just shoot me an email. I'm really, really happy to, to help out in any way. Daniel, thank well, actually, you. There's, a, there's also a giveaway right now in terms of the ebook, which I, I'm sure a link has been sent throughout this yeah, podcast. Brooks, Brooks will, Brooks will send, uh, send it so opportunity to win, win a free ebook as well as then Space Maker. So S P A C E M A K E R S. .com.au. <laughs> Got that right, I think. Uh, so info at spacemakers.com will get, get you there as well. So that's wonderful, Daniel. And Again, thank you. It's, been, it's wonderful as 100 Movements Publishing to be able to serve you, support you, partner with you in this. So bless you. And for those that have been listening, we will pray for you, encourage you, hear Daniel's words as ones that are edifying and encouraging that this is a faith issue, a discipleship issue. It's for us to be faithful to Jesus and to become more Christ-like in the midst of this. So Spacemaker is Daniel's book. Encourage you to get a copy of it. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you.